everyone, and welcome back to Operation History, where history is more than what you remember. Welcome to our first episode in the new year. Tonight, we have all we have three of your hosts in the virtual house. I'm Maria, and as I said, I have two more hosts tonight. I am joined by Lauren. Hi, Happy New Year. And I'm joined by David. Hello, how's it going, everybody? Derek could not be with us tonight, but we wish him well in his endeavors. Tonight, David will be giving us the story of oil, environmental protection, and a small nonprofit. So now I'm going to turn it over to Dave. Take it away. Alrighty. Before we actually start the story, I want everyone to close their eyes. And keep them closed, and I'll tell you when you're right open. So, your eyes are closed, and I want you to imagine... It's 39 degrees outside. You're watching the sunset. You're eating dinner with your family. Taking the dog for a walk. Or you're walking across the beach with a loved one. Or a significant other. Whatever floats your boat. All of a sudden, around 6 p.m., you start to smell something in the air. You smelled this before. You smell around your car. You smell in your home. Ooh, that's the smell of oil. I hope you don't smell in your home. Well, some, I think some people's heaters, maybe if they start like leaking a little bit or something else along those lines, which if you smell oil in your house, you should probably get out and then call someone about that, primarily the fire department. Um, <laughs> that being said, that was all around 6 p.m. Now open your eyes and what you just felt and what you saw in your head is what many Rhode Islanders experienced on January 19th in 1996 so we're coming up on the 25th anniversary of the north oil cape spill the single hull oil tanker named the north cape along with the tugboat scandia ran into the moonstone beach um when it when the ship ran into the beach the hull split open and it released 828,000 gallons of home heating oil into the ocean. Over half a million gallons of home oil leaked into the ocean. And it wasn't just in a far part of the ocean, it was at the shallow point. So I'll, I'll get more into what happens when oil or something is close closer to the groundwater or the ground soil. Um, the ship captain uh, was distracted. He wasn't listening to the commands from the Coast Guard, wasn't listening to his GPS um, beeper, and did not change course and time when he made the collision. So at this point, by this point in 1996, uh, all tankers are required by law to have GPS tracking um, in, in their ship to help prevent accidents like this happen. Um... But the captain didn't do that. Um, the captain did um, acknowledge that he goofed up. Um, he did accept full responsibility uh, for the spill. He didn't say it was something else out of worldly. He did accept that he should have been paying attention and he should have been actually watching things better. Um, this spill is considered one of the worst in Rhode Island history. Um, the reason why is because the wind was blowing at 50 knots that day. Um, and in regular speech, that's 25 miles per an hour, I believe. It might be a little bit off. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a Navy guy. Um, but it was bad enough that the, the winds were making large waves. It was carrying all this oil out far past where the ship was. I also mentioned before... Um, that the water was shallow at this point. So as this oil is spreading far out and going deeper in, it's getting into the sediment oil, which is getting into the sediment soil um, at the ground level, which is where many different life forms live, um, different um, marine life, different fungals, all of that. Um, along with that, the oil also goes to the Tristan Pond National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, which has endangered and high-risk species like the New England cottontail, the piping plover, um, and other ecosystems. Um, 
so this area is impacted dramatically. Um, the pipe implodes, lose 10 of their species, and they're, um, in the piping uh, plover um, breeding cycle is disrupted, so the numbers are cut back dramatically. Um, I also said, you know, there's habitats in there, um, so there's also high-risk habitats that are needed for the bay and for other areas located, like narrow-leaf uh, cattails, coastal shrubberb land, um, salt ponds, and barren beach and uh, barrier beaches. So as this oil spill is getting out, it's going, it's infiltrating the bottom rock sediment, um, is doing a lot of damage. Um, like I mentioned before, there's a lot of damage to ecosystems and marine life and um, plant life. There's around 171 million life forms that are lost to this spill. 171 million life forms. So, um, a lot of it is surf crab. 150 million surf crab is lost in this incident alone. 9 million lobsters are killed. Um, around 2,100 bird lives are killed. Um, so, it's not just environmentally damaging, but it has large repercussions throughout the entire state. Um, I was, I was talking to someone earlier, um, not, this doesn't just impact life, but also industries, uh, fishing cannot happen anywhere in that bay for a while as they're cleaning up and the fish life are gone. So even after it's cleaned up, there's no returning to that area for an extended period of time until everything's cleaned up and everything's given the okay. Um... Um, this also, but this isn't the whole total. Um, there were things that was not included. So, like, worms weren't counted. Crabs and mussels weren't included. So, if you are a big mussels person in Rhode Island this time, or crabs, you're seeing that disappear as well. And that's not totally reported because the, the counts is so high. Um, so... You're probably wondering, you're, you're listening to the story, and the story sounds really, really grim. It sounds bad. It sounds like there's no, like, turn point. But there is. Every every story has a shining moment. In this point, that's Save the Bay. So Save the Bay is a nonprofit organization that's been in Rhode Island since the 1970s. Uh, it started out by tackling pollution issues, um, pollution in Rhode Island left by the Navy, left by big power plants in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. So this is their this is their field. And they also took a big stand against the 1989 spill, which I'm not going to go into. That's a totally separate episode that might come down the road later. Um, but so this isn't their first oil spill rodeo, but it is the biggest one. Um, so they get right on top of it. They have me, uh, marine biologists um, start working to see what life is impacted, um, animal life, uh, plant life, all of that. At the same token, the image that I gave you guys earlier enraged a lot of Rhode Islanders, and all, but also got a lot of Rhode Islanders to want to act. This was the biggest turnout for volunteers. Uh, when I was doing research for this topic earlier this year before COVID, well, last year before COVID became COVID, uh, I was doing some work with Save the Bay, and a lot of it was looking into their archives. The gentleman I was talking to, this he witnessed this, and this is kind of what got him started in the organization itself. So there were so many people calling that they actually had to turn people away um, and put down, like, if we need more assistance, we will give you a call. But they were set. Uh, the Coast Guard was uh, involved, obviously, because it's, it's a threat to the security, the water security in that area. Uh, Rhode Island uh, Department of Environmental Management got involved because the environment's, you know, in chaos right now. 
and they began one of the biggest cleanup operations of environmental disasters in Rhode Island history. Um, I was reading in the Frojo people getting in this scientific year, going out and cleaning them. Kind of looked like the Alaska operation in the 1990 in 1990 uh, 1990 um, clean the penguins and all that. That's what they did. They started cleaning the environment around to try and get those areas back to as close as they could pre-disaster. Um, so we have all of this um, action by Save the Bay and by different organizations as well. Um, they go a step further, though. Um, Save the Bay teams up with then um, State Senator Fogarty and U.S. Senator Chafee to pass legislation to prevent in Rhode Island to prevent this from happening again. So two uh, double holes become a state standard. Um, originally, before the Alaska spill, states could not determine what vessels had what hull capacity or what hull shipped. Um, for some reason, the Supreme Court, I think it was Rhode Island, the Supreme Court said that states, um, at least in the Rhode Island case, did not have the authority to determine, did not have the authority to regulate um, the specifications of ships coming in and out of their ports, which I don't remember seeing anything in the Constitution saying that the federal government had had the authority to take that, but that's a totally different conversation for a different day. Um, but they do pass that. Um, and so June 1st, um, 1997, the Rhode Island Spill Prevention Control Act is passed in Rhode Island, um, and that required all large vessels transporting oil and hazardous material to have double hulls and, or escort tugs. Um, like I said, the captain did accept full responsibility, and the cap in the company that hired him did accept responsibility, and a settlement of eight million dollars came out of it, and that was put towards ecosystem reconstruction in Rhode Island. Um, that would take place. Um, so we're getting towards the end of the story, and you're probably wondering, you know, what happens now? Um, Rhode Island faces another oil spill in 2000. Um, this one's from Connecticut, though, and they were coming down, and it's a, it's not a big, it's not a big disaster area, but it does further push the agenda that double hulls need to be in place, and, um, for those of you who don't know, the United States ends up, um, phasing out um, single hole shipping to the United States entirely. So after 2010, any ship entering the United States has to have a double hull. That's a bare minimum requirement, along with the GPS systems and all that. Um, and so they, pa they, they draw on that past experience and they're actually nominated by the Coast Guard as the volunteer coordinate center for Rhode Island for major cleanup operations. Um, after that, Save the Bay still monitors the habitats that were affected by the spill and the marine life forms. And their work with higher education institutions to help repopulate the areas, both animal and plant life, that were lost. Um, there's, major, there's major things going on there, which is really, really neat. Um, probably, what happened, probably wondering what happened to North Cape ship. It, it was still out. Um, it was repaired. Um, that captain resumed operations of that ship. Um, Europe had banned single hull ships from entering um, the continent and do shipping there. So um, it bounced between South, um, yeah, South America and Asia until finally every every major continent has um, banned single hull ships from entering uh, their sphere of influence. Um, so once that happened, the North Cape ship was retired, uh, in full. Um, and at this point, my story's done. What do you guys want to know more about? Um, how, how is the wildlife doing down there? Do you know? Like, how is, like, how are there... <sighs> How do I want to say this? How are their attempts to, I guess, 
not restock the wildlife down there, but like monitor the mo- yeah. How are like are they coming efforts? back? Are they kind of extinct so, in that area or? Um, a lot of the information is kept at Save the Bay, and once COVID hit last year, I did lose part. I I did lose a lot of my contact over there. Mm-hmm. Um, just because you know nonprofits are going through a lot of weird things right now. Yes. Um, but from what I could gather from the NOAA website, um, the official like federal um observation stuff had concluded in 2010. Um, but I know Save the Bay still does things over there. Um, I know there's planting of, uh, plant life that was lost at, um, institution called URI, the University of Rhode Island. Um, so their bio, um, department, um, works with Save the Bay in repopulating that. So they grow it at the university and transport it back and then Save the Bay trans, uh, transplants it to that island. Um. Because some of that soil was um, compromised because of the oil spill and all that, so there are it's still ongoing, but it is a lot better now than it was right after right. that incident. Good job, URI. Thanks, URI. Thanks, Save the Bay. Thanks, Save the Bay. They're pretty cool. They are pretty cool, and they still do. Um, well, not right now because with the, all the um, COVID restrictions are still in place, but pre-COVID, what they used to do was um, they would take college students out there to check on that area. So those, so students from URI would go out there with the specimens that they had grown, and they would plant it so they could see what their work was towards. Yeah. Um, and then Save the Bay also had their educational vessels, so they would take families out, school groups or whatever out to different parts of the bay so they could see the wildlife they could see you know you know their conservation goals and their um protection of the bay goals and to help connect people to their larger surroundings cool yeah do you guys have Oh, I was going to say it kind of almost reminds me of not even because there wasn't an oil spill, but um, where I work, there's a brook with um, herringfish and we try to do the same thing. But we we call them fish cops. It's the wildlife preservation people. (laughs) Fish cops. Well, I mean, they look like cops and then they're like, hey, you can't touch the fish. We're like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I don't want to touch the fish, but it fell out of the stream, and I want to be nice. <laughs> yeah, I know. So a lot of the regulations, especially for uh, endangered, local endangered animals, local high-risk animals, is that, you know, people can't touch them. And if you yeah. do see... Dead or alive, that, you can't touch them. Right. And if you do see an animal outside of its its habitat area or whatever, you have to call the state and the state has to come in and and deal with it themselves it's a huge it's a thing yeah with us they're like going over a dam um so like not a big dam it's like a 10 foot dam but like sometimes we'll go out there and just like kick it back in the water like well technically we didn't touch it Mm -hmm. but it's fine they're like well we don't want it we we then just smells like fish but that's neither here nor there Did you guys learn about this? Like, did if you guys had like a Rhode Island history course or something? Like, did this? As I've never heard of this. I didn't hear um, about this so, for Dave. So I was a I was alive for three things. I Maria, you were alive for all three of these. When have you been? Because the first one was in yeah, nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, I would have been. S- uh, that one I actually was not alive for. That one, that one just okay. missed me. But uh, the '96 one I was alive for. I wouldn't have been old enough to know what was going on, but I never heard about any of the anything to do with the 1996 oil spill or even save the Bay's efforts towards the oil spill. Uh, if it wasn't for you, because I was 
doing research alongside of you on a different topic during that same time, uh, right before COVID. And I remember you and I were kind of going back about our findings. So (laughs) I, I came across this from somewhere. I think it might've been the professor I had. No, it wasn't the professor. No, I feel like it was a work related thing. I think I, I think I came across some information from work. Um, I was looking up Save the Bay, and then as I'm doing my Save the Bay, um, I started going through their archive system. That's when I found all three of these. So I didn't know about this. I was alive. I would have been, I would have been six for one of them. Um, but that one I don't remember ever being taught or anything like that. The other one, I, the first one for the '96 one, I was around two. So that one, I was alive, but I wasn't there. Um, I'm. So one month younger than the '96 one, so I wasn't there. <laughs> you know, when you say stuff like that, I really realized the big age gap between us, and it never sits well with me. It's what five years. <laughs> Get over yourself. <laughs> That's still five. I, think it's I don't know math. That's fine, man. Moving on. Anyway, <laughs> um, not here nor so there. I, I, oh, go ahead. Yeah, neither here nor there. Uh, I have a question. If nobody else has a question, go for it. Um, I don't know if you kind of answered this already or not, Dave. But were there any lasting side effects or direct effects from the oil spill to the area that was was affected, for lack of a better word? Um. So the bay is a big one. Um, the bay had to get clean back to its pre. Um, if I remember correctly, in the environmental environmental studies world, it's pre-environmental impact or pre-human impact, um, pre-event um, levels. It had to re- had to get that threshold down to that level. Um, like I said, the um, the pillar pl- uh, plovers. Um, their cycle was severely disrupted, and they lost ten of them. Um, so those could be ten male, perfectly breeding males. So these species um, would have taken longer to recover. Um, I can take a look to see what its numbers look like now, um, from a wildlife perspective. Um, for local level, I would I would think the local industries, restaurant. Um, fishing, fishing was a huge one impacted, um, all that had to be fixed in one form or another. Um, and I was, ta- I was thinking about today, heating oil is almost mm. a million gallons of home heating oil was lost. So heating oil prices would have gone up. People could have been out of oil in their homes. Um, so this has that initial environmental impact, but also has ripple effects um, as well. People would have had to pay a higher price, higher premiums or whatever to get that oil into the home. Um, Rhode Island had to scramble to try and get oil to fill that in. So um, there is a lot of repercussions from this, not just from the environmental standpoint, um, but everyday personal stuff too. You took the words uh, right out of my mouth for what I was going to say. It seems like, and I mean, this is is kind of obvious, but it it seems like there's just as much of an economic repercussion as there is a environmental repercussion because you're right. uh, Heating oil for people who, especially, you know, in colder months of the year, uh, they heat their homes with heating oil. And if there's a shortage, that's a huge problem. But even... um, the fishing industry, which is a, a very big industry in Rhode Island, and that directly affects supermarkets, fish markets, which we still have fish markets, uh, fish markets, supermarkets, and restaurants. Because I know plenty of restaurants who just go straight to the source. Mm-hmm. And an update on the uh, piping... Uh lover it is there there's still a population on Rhode Island I'm looking at a map right now from Audubon the Audubon Society and there is still a population here um 
I'm looking at one cool. too. It's from um, Eco Rhode Island. They said in 2017 there was 98 pairs in Rhode Island. Instead Eagle, of the uh, 10. The, yeah. yeah, I don't know. They're adorable. I implore all of you to Google typing plovers. They're they adorable. are cute. Oh. Love them. Love them. Oh, little guys. Looks kind of like a... It kind of looks like a... If, if anyone's a Pokemon fan out there, it kind of looks like a fletching. Um, Just a little mm -hmm. bit smaller. It looks like um like a regular like sparrow, but like a beach mom sparrow. If that makes sense. Like it's it like a sparrow sense. that was like, I'm moving to the beach. And did it in so looks fabulous. So it's a Floridian sparrow, is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's like a single mom who's like, I'm ready to get back out there and I'm gonna live at the beach in South Kingston, Rhode Island. The Fletcher Pokemon analogy was a good analogy. <laughs> hey. I tried. <laughs> um, I mean, Lauren, you had a good one too, but I, I, I couldn't think of it off the top of my head. I'm like, Fletching, which one is that? And then I like typed it. I'm like, oh, Fletching, the little cute little bird. Okay, yep. I think they just released yeah. it on Pokemon Go. I was just going to say, I've been seeing them. They pop up everywhere. Yes, to out us and triangulate us. The three of us do still play Pokemon Go. And we are friends on Pokemon Go. So, there. Yep. I think the maybe one day that might be... <laughs> I think um, maybe one day I'll, I'll, we'll put a little Easter egg for our, little, for our Pokemon tags in there. Yeah. Uh... Operation History listener is saying out, but all we do is play Pokemon Go. Yeah. yeah. We did when we were on campus. Yeah, exactly. What's not to like? <laughs> what else was there to do? Were we supposed to be there to learn? Learning's for losers. No. Unless you're under you the age learn. of 21. Same school. Yeah. No. In all serious, though, we, we, did, we took our studies very seriously. If we didn't, this would have never happened. Just don't ask happened. me how long a professor has been waiting for a paper. <laughs> and we'll be fine. <laughs> uh, Alright, off topic. Dave, how did you get into environmental history? Because I feel like this is, I feel like this is almost kind of like a newer form of history because it's not one that we used to hear a lot about but we're hearing about it more and it's and even that it's not one you hear every day so what what draws your attention to environmental history um so i didn't get really into environmental history until 20 was that 2018 2018 2019 um 2018 i took a job my, my current job. Um, so 2018, I took a job at a zoo. I'm not going to say which one I work at. Um, I'm still employed there. Um, I've been happily there for about going on three years this year. Oh my god, really? Long. Sorry. I, yeah, I, I would be, I'd be there for three years this year. Oh um, and a benefit of working there is I don't, I don't work as a keeper, so you think I'm a keeper? I, I'm no, I'm not, I'm not a keeper. Um, I work with guests every day, uh, one form or another. Um, but it was around the time that we were opening a new exhibit, and when we opened this new exhibit, I went to the um, the employee and members night, and I'm going through, and I'm seeing sloths climbing everywhere. I'm seeing golden monkey tamarins just hanging out, you know, they're not, they're not behind glass or anything. A lot of them are free ranging. Um, and I came up to an animal called Tamadua. Mm -hmm. Um, Tamaduas are the cutest little, cutest little things ever. Um, they're tree dwelling anteaters. Um, and I had a, prof and what, what we call in the educational world and in the zoo world, a profound experience. Now a profound experience is an experience that you have that, leaves an impression on you um in a good way or a bad way um but it leaves it leaves its mark on you and you're changed by it so me seeing this little you know being 
in this exhibit when it opened um, had a profound experience on me. And it was from that profound experience um, that I wanted to learn more. Um, it, was on the same, it was around the same time that I was doing an environmental paper in my Africa course. Um, I was doing my globalization course, and the professor was is, is an environmental studies historian as well. Um, and that's what, that's what sparked it. After reading some other books about the topic, I just become more and more ingrained in it. Um, nowadays, it's most of my focal point when it comes to history is the environmental uh, side of the house, which isn't talked about really in schools not too much as it should be mm -hmm. um and at least from my personal view it's the biggest part because there's always the environment and the best way of gauging the impacts of human culture human society um is through its environment so i'm hoping you know whatever school i end up wherever i end up in the next you know year year and a half i'm able to part that education that environmental education aspect onto students so i don't know if that's what you were looking for if that's more or less what you got but that's what i got yeah no i mean it it's a personal question so whatever you had for me i'll take and i i remember that if you when you um when you brought up the africa course i also remember that as well because we were both in that course and I believe we both did something environmental because there were like several topics or sev several umbrella topics that you could choose to frame yep. your paper through. And I believe we both did environmental that semester. We did. You focused more on the elephant side elephants. of the house, though, and elephant yep. sanctuaries where I looked at the overall um, negative environmental impacts of mining and uh, forced infrastructural development by a colonial power. Yep. Yeah. Because I was looking at like elephant and elephant sanctuaries and like how much, how much global, how much the environment in Africa, as well as economics and public safety, how it's kind of like a big circle that elephants revolve around and in some way, shape or form the well being of elephants is connected or has a hand in all of those aspects it was really interesting i remember you guys taking that course mm -hmm. great times i don't think it was the same one that i took but it's the same professor it is yeah i think you took the other one yeah, i've taken I that one too i think i took the one that's like directly before yeah it's yes. it's um it's under colonial rule yeah yep yep i took that one too Thanks, Tamaduas. You're pretty cool. Yep. They are wicked cool. Oh, Tamaduas. Uh, hey, David. Um, earlier you were talking about how it became standard for ships to be double-hulled. What does uh -huh. that mean? Like, what's the difference between a single and double-hulled ship? That's a good question. Um, so, a single-hull and double-hull ship is just the amount of layering between um the hull and the contents in the ship so a single hull is there's a single hole that protects the contents inside the ship from the elements um so a double hull is you have the first layer of hull then you have some spacing between the, then you have a second one um so and the reason why shipping has that is because if the first layer breaks um Depending on where you're shipping, um, it's not going to penetrate the second hull. So you keep your contents there protected. So in the case of the oil, the argument was, the argument is for the argument is for double hauling is that a lot of we don't have icebergs in Rhode Island. Um, Anymore. So, right. So the double hull would be su sufficient enough to go through in case there was an incident. So the, the argument was if North Cape had two hulls instead of one, the oil spill may not have happened. And the reason being is that once once that first hull was penetrated, that second hull would not have been impacted because it, it wasn't that deep. Mm -hmm. So 
the cut wasn't was deep enough to penetrate the hole, so it would not have the second hole. So all that oil would not have leaked, and it would have prevented, or at least it would have minimized, totally prevent that much oil from spilling, and all of the wildlife and that ecos and the ecosystems being impacted. So that was that's the that's the argument between the two holes. Do you? Think- I think the. Sorry, go ahead. Um, the Alaska oil spill was also a single hull. So nationally, you know, that's, that's the mother of all oil spills, um, Mm -hmm. the American conscious, even though Rhode Island had one a couple months beforehand. Um, but that one's the one that overshadows everything. Um, so, and that was the big national push for single hull, for sing for a double hull, hulling in ships. So remember earlier when I said the Supreme Court said you can't do you can't regulate how many layers a, a ship has for hauling. Mm-hmm. After that, there was regulation on that, and states were able, and I think and still are able to um, direct their more stringent environmental policies based on how they're feeling and how their voters are voting. Um, do have they seen, like, has there been a drastic decrease in oil spills, like, through, say, running aground or things like that because of the outlawing or the discontinuation of single hold chips or? From tanker, from tanker ships, yes. And that's because, um, through a variety of reasons. One, every... Every ship has to have GPS tracking now. That's monitored by the Coast Guard. That that mm-hmm. is a result of Rhode Island. And again, that goes back to the 1989 uh, oil spill, which I'm not going to get fully into. That's another episode by itself. Um, Add to the but list. But after that, Rhode Island becomes a test port for GPS in every ship. Uh, huh. And it's monitored by the Coast Guard. So GPS, if those of you don't know, was invented by the DOD, which is also known as the Department of Defense. Um, after this oil spill, Save the Bay makes the case, along with the along with the Coast Guard, to have ships imprinted with GPS tracking. Um, and it was and this case was coming ahead because Alaska. This was right after the Alaska oil spill. Alaska was vying for this research opportunity as well. Rhode Island won the case. So Rhode Island became the first test state for GPS tracking and shipping. Um, and now you can so track literally every single chip in the world. It's called like marinetracker.com or something. Yeah. Um, cool. So, but from shipping tanks themselves, mm-hmm. um, it has dramatically gone down. Now, now the new issue with oil, though, is rigs and making sure that they're up to code and up to safety precautions. Yeah. Um, that I don't have any information on, so that I can do a podcast on that, but that would be like I need I need research time. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do it. You can't do it for tonight. No, I can't. Unfortunately, that's super interesting. I, I, I need I need more prep time because <laughs> I like vaguely know ship stuff, but like I work with like a ship that is a replica of one that's four hundred years old. And while I know what hold like the different holds are, we weren't worried about this. <laughs> nope. <laughs> we were you like, guys, I was just say you guys had a completely different problem when it came to ships. Yeah, <laughs> we were like, how do we not die? Just in general, not so much. Well, especially not the oil. Are but. we going the right way? I think the wind took us east instead of north. Oh boy! Don't even get me started. That's another <laughs> episode in and of itself. <gasps> shipwreck, Operation Shipwreck, call it. Anyway, so what else you guys got for me? If we wanted to help save the bay, what could we do? That's a good question. Uh, I was actually thinking um, of that's that. an excellent question, and that actually, actually leads me into the second point. So I wanna, I wanna take. A brief moment here um, before we get into our outro. Um, to say two things. One, if you want to know the sources that I use for tonight's episode, 
please feel free to um, at us at Operation History, um, Operation Hist on Twitter. Um, we will get back to you. I Again, I have a whole paper based on this and say the Bay Organization. So if you want to see some of that, I don't mind sharing it out. Um, I believe in, you know, freedom of press and freedom of information. Um, I just ask that you don't publish it without my permission. <laughs> um, to the second part, though, before we end tonight's episode, I do want to take a moment to thank nonprofit organizations um, like Save the Bay, um, the Rhode Island Audubon Society, um, Roger Williams Park Zoo, um, the Brooklyn Zoo, and all other nonprofits, the um, globally, nationally, and locally. Um, you guys are still doing your mission. You're still preserving, restoring the natural world in all the living in all the living beings that live in those areas, either it be indigenous tribes, animals, plant life, the air, whatever the case may be. You're still you're still out there doing the fight that you believe in and that your mission stands for even during these weird times. Um, so if you don't know any local nonprofit organizations like Save the Bay or if you want to know local efforts, efforts, Google it. Google it. Um, um, Save the Bay is very open with all of its stuff. I'm on their webpage right now, checking it out. Um, you can easily donate to them, um, whatever the case may be. I know I, even during Corona, um, still gave as much as I could. It wasn't every month, but I would give 10 to $25. I did a fundraiser on my birthday um, for Roger Williams Park Zoo because I very heavily believe in their mission. Um, so I give I money to them very regularly. Um, and you can give to other places that you believe in too because if you, there's a nonprofit out there that fits your mission and your personal beliefs. Um, so you can hit the donate bar. Um, you can go hit the donate button, whatever, and fill whatever you're comfortable with. Um, but the other nice thing about nonprofits, it's a nice reminder that when a community bands together, anything is possible because the best way of fixing the world is fixing your own little corner of it. Uh, you gotta start with the man in the mirror. Yeah. Yes. Were you, were you making a Michael Jackson reference right there? Yes, I was. <laughs> R.I.P. Um unrelated well related but not related um what's your opinion on the wwf oh uh, the world <laughs> i almost said world wrestling federation i'm also yeah bad. i was about uh, to say world... that <laughs> <laughs> the world wildlife federation yes well wildlife um they're they're a good global institution in that they are they do bring a lot of light to issues um, I wish they would stop using as much paper as I get from them. Um, I get a good, I get a good sizable piece of paper from them. Um, but they are good. Um, they are a big, they're a big organization. Um, they're everywhere, which is good. And, you know, have a lot of publicity that they have, you know, they have to, they have to always be on their best behavior, which I'm not saying they're not, or that they are, uh, mm -hmm. but they have a lot more to look out for. Um, but they also have a bigger platform to share information of endangered animals and animals and what we can do as societies um, to help them. Now, other organizations out there that people may not know is the AZA, uh, which, in, which is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. That's here in the United States. Um, every continent has their own, though. Europe has the EU AZA. Um, I think Asia has the AAZA. Um, there's also the WAZA, which is the World um, Association of, Z of Zoos and Aquariums, and that they hold um, their animal standards to the utmost. Um, and there's other, other local organizations that also have vested interest in the well-being of animals and the education behind them. Um, so you can check all that information out, though, if you want to check to see if the zoos and AZA, which only 10% of zoos are at least in the united states i don't know how they are globally um but you can check your zoo and see if that is, if that's the case and then you can go to aza and see what all the criteria is because it's a, it's a lengthy um certification criteria for them um but yeah those are some organizations and there's also a lot of good um national ones too vietnam has a nice one um so yeah cool 
Um, just to just to hop on that bandwagon really quickly, it's kind of the same, but it's not. We talked about Africa a little bit, and there's actually a really great nonprofit conservation organization that I follow on Instagram, and it's the African Parks Network. It is a national parks and protected areas that works on behalf of African governments across Africa in different countries to help benefit people and wildlife. And they do a lot that affects the environment. It affects the wildlife. It affects the people, the culture and economics. And it's one of those situations where again, everything kind of goes hand in hand. They have really great causes. I follow them on uh, Instagram, I found them when I was doing research for that paper that we both mentioned in that class. And you can give them a follow on Instagram. I highly recommend following them. They're always doing different things to try to, you know, get as much as they can because they do so, they do such important work that they, they should be championed. So yeah, African Parks Network. Kind of related, but it's not. But I figured I'd. You were you were throwing out ones on. Ooh, sorry, you were throwing out ones on different continents, and I was like, let me uh, let me throw out one for Africa. No, and that's good because you, um, because it's important for everyone to know that every continent, every country does care about environmental issues. Um, it's not always mainstreamed, but every every continent, every country, working towards environmental problem um or conserving a life that you know needs to be protected so it's good to highlight that um that people still care about what's you know what's you know going on in their backyard agreed Agreed. all right thank you so much for tuning into this month's episode we appreciate all of you who show up every month and give us a listen and a like we have two big announcements for February. In February, what? you get not one, two episodes! Wow! In the month of February, really? we are teaming up with another history podcast, The History Book. You can find them on Twitter at the underscore history book. They're really cool. Um, additionally, in the month of February, we are teaming up with another podcast. It's one of our favorites. It's a fan's world. And we're going to talk about Disney history with Maria and our friend Kelly. Y'all don't know what you're getting yourselves into. It's going to be so much fun. February is about love. And we are loving the collabs. (laughs) I had the rum and coke before this. Um, But if you just can't wait to listen to Maria and Kelly... Uh, go find It's a Fan's World where you listen to podcasts and listen to the two of them discuss all things from their favorite pop culture fandoms, such as well, such as Marvel, Star Wars, and Disney. And this month you're talking about... Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Ugh! I love that yeah. movie so much. Yeah, I know. I, I can't wait. I was actually thinking I have to start doing my research and I'm actually really excited to do this one. I wish my research was watching a movie. <gasps> we get to watch Snow White! Anyway, yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> Spo- um, spoiler alert, yes. As always, please download, rate, review, and subscribe to Operation History on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's an easy and quick way for you to show your love and support for the show. Give us a like on our Facebook page, Operation History. And you can also reach us via our Twitter, Operation Hist. That's Operation H-I-S-T. We are approaching 100 followers over there, so come say hi. It's a lot of fun being part of the History Podcast community over there. Of course, if you have questions about this episode, questions about previous episodes, uh, comments, complaints, praises, or if you want to suggest a topic for an upcoming episode uh you can always email us at operation history podcast at gmail.com uh this has been operation history i am one of your hosts lauren i and once again i am joined by maria see you real soon guys and we of course listen to the fascinating story uh that dave gave to us tonight 
I hope I didn't put you guys to sleep. <laughs> Never. All right, we'll see you next time. Operation History is Operation History has no association with any of the institutions or organizations mentioned in this podcast. The views and expressions of the hosts and guests are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent any academic institutions, organizations, or companies that they currently work for or attend or that they have previously worked for or attended in the past. For listening and tune in next time for Operation History. Oh, well, then that's cool. Yeah. That's that's not bad. And we never shut the fuck up, so it works out. Yeah, we never shut the and And here we are, like, eh. Yeah, could be worse. Yes. You can't stop the beat. Can't stop the beat. Can't stop the beat. Yeah! Can't stop the beat. Can't stop the beat. Oh. This is the potential breakup song. Mm. Album needs. All right, Derek's. Uh, Derek, Dave is young. Well, there you go. You're due for one a night, so there it is. Um, David is yawning. Lauren's singing, and now I'm starting to yawn. So. All right. Let's get this get shit the on show on the road. All right. You're still here. Are you guys still listening to us? What do you think this is a Marvel film or something? <laughs> I'm, jo- I'm joking. We do have something cool for you guys. Um, so if you've gone to this part, you listen to the bloopers, you listen to the song. Well, I, Dave, got off my lazy bum and decided to create a Twitter just for the podcast. So you can follow me at historian underscore tips. On that page, I post anything Tamadua-related, environmental, educational, whatever. You see something cool, go ahead and at me. I'm always looking for new fun pages to find. If you want to send me a comment personally or anything along those lines, you can go ahead and do it there too. If you want to see any of my work, you can shoot me a DM there as well. I don't mind sharing. <laughs> Thank you again for listening all the way suit all the way through, and have a great rest of your night, guys.